Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 370 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Our guest today is Melinda Snodgrass, who you may remember from our panel on the Orville back in episode 288, and from our panel on the Magicians back in episode 199. She's the author of many novels, including the Circuit series and the Edge series, and she's also written scripts for TV shows like The Outer Limits and Sequest DSV. Her Star Trek The Next Generation script, The Measure of a Man, has been voted as one of the ten best Star Trek scripts of all time. Together with George R. R. Martin, she edits the Wild Card series of Shared World Superhero Anthologies, and she's currently serving as executive producer on the upcoming Wild Cards TV show. And we'll be speaking with her today about her novel The High Ground, the first book in her Imperial series of space adventure novels. And today's show is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at patreon.com slash geeks. And I want to give a special thank you to John Torvaldson, who just signed up this week to support us on Patreon. All right, so now let's get to our interview. All right, so we're here with Melinda Snodgrass. Welcome to the show. Hi, thank you, David, for inviting me. Yeah, yeah. Okay, and so your novel, The High Ground, is dedicated to George R. R. Martin. So why did you want to dedicate the book to him? <laughs> well, because it went on a long, incredibly complex journey to become a novel. So I had started a version of this book years and years ago, and it's one of my trunk novels. You know, every author has a trunk novel, things that, you know, get hidden away and you never see the light of day. But I had done a reading from it at a convention, and George had come to the reading, and he fell in love with my universe. And he came to me and he said, I want to play in your universe. So why don't we do it like we do wild cards and turn it into a shared world? And uh, we'll do it a science fiction shared world, and we're going to do it together. And I was like, okay, that sounds like fun. And George, <laughs> so I had my character, Thracius, you know, Tracy Random Bell Manor, and he had the the antagonist, the villain character, Boho, that he had created when we were going to do a shared world. And we had invited some other writers and Laura Mixon and Steve, um, Steve Lay and a few other people. And then we weren't able to sell it. It was very frustrating. Nobody wanted a science fiction um, shared world. And so after a few years, um, I sort of said to everybody, look, guys, you know, this is the universe I created. I'd really like to play in it. And so I'm going to go back to just trying to write it as individual solo novels. And everybody was like, we get it. We understand. That's cool. And George was like, would you like to keep Boho? <laughs> and I went, yes, please, if you'll let me. Um, I'd like to use uh, your villain, um, who referred to my character as lowborn scum all the time. <laughs> so um, that's why it sort of... In some ways, indirectly, George is, you know, was the genesis um, for the later versions of it because, you know, I had created the world and the vision I had of it of where our future would go. Um, but uh, but he gave me boho. <laughs> so. Well, and so for people who might not even know about wild cards and or even shared worlds anthologies, could you just explain about that? Okay, well, shared worlds, they began uh, years and years ago with a series of books called Thieves World. And they were very, very popular for a while. And uh, George and I, who were playing in this role-playing game that George was running for us and then decided to turn our obsession with this role-playing game into money, how it basically works is the creators of the shared world create um, a universe, a sandbox, if you will. So George and I created the Wild Cards universe, which was about 
very real world look at superheroes in present day United States. This was back in 1986. God help me. <laughs> and um, so we created sort of the overview of it. It's as if we were the executive producer of a TV series and said, here's the, here's the overarching plot. And then once you've got your sandbox, you go in and you invite your friends to come and play with you in the sandbox. And um, so we did that. And then they proposed characters. And the fun of a shared world is that you get to use each other's characters, not just write your own. And also that you it's it's sort of like the best of being in a TV show's writer's room because we all work together, interact, uh, kick around ideas, say, hey, wouldn't it be cool if... And uh, that's how shared worlds work. So if you do one, you want to make sure that your contributors are people who are very collaborative, who like to work with others, work well with others. Um, you don't want a writer who's very protective of their characters and their creation. You want somebody who's like, yeah, by all means, take my character, see what you do with it, use and abuse them, you know, um, and are always curious to see how a character is viewed through another writer's lens. Um, so that's sort of the, what in general, what a shared world is. And so Wild Cards has been very, very successful. I mean, I think there are something like 23 books in the series and it's being turned into a TV show right now. That is correct. Actually, there are 27 books. Um, I edited the book number 28, which is set in Great Britain. It's going to be called Three Kings. It will be out early next year. Um, and we actually have two in the pipeline. We have Three Kings in the pipeline and also a book called Joker Moon. Um, and so that will put us at 30 books. Uh, and yes, I am in Los Angeles right now because I've been working in the writer's room um, on the shows we're developing for Hulu, um, two television series, one about our Jokers and one about the Aces, who, which is our word for, for superheroes. I mean, given all that success, I'm a little surprised you weren't able to sell another Shared Worlds project. You, you, is there any reason why you think that was? Uh, you know, I... It was a number of years ago. I mean, a number of years ago we were trying. And this was before, you know, this was before the sort of huge Game of Thrones bump and and uh, and the wild cards getting set up at, at UCP and all these various different things. So I think, and, and the market, I mean, we're the longest running. And in fact, as far as I know, the only still exited um, shared world anthology that's out there. So I think the bloom was just kind of off that rose. And, you know, George wasn't quite George. I mean, he was big, but he wasn't George R.R. R. Martin at that point. So you don't think it says anything about sort of the the state of outer space science fiction um, being. I think that was hot. probably part of it uh, at the time. Space opera, space opera wasn't very popular. And then along came Ty and Daniel and with their James S.A. Corey books, The Expanse, and um, they bucked the tendency. I mean, because if you talk to editors back at, in that time period, they would say, oh, nobody wants space. Nobody wants spaceships. They want more dark, contemporary, edgy, blah, blah, blah. And then Ty and Daniel came along and proved that that wasn't the case at all. So. Right. I was I actually, you know, I interviewed Ty a few years ago. I think it was more like five years ago. And I just went back and re-listened to it because I thought he had mentioned you in it. And he did. And it basically sounds like the the expanse came about because of you, because you uh, suggested that he should run uh, the sort of expanse role playing game that he was doing. And that's how he met Daniel. And that's how the whole thing kind of got started. 
I guess in a way that's true. Um, I mean, Ty and, and his wife, Shanae, moved down to New Mexico, and we all became friends. And um, I recommended Ty to George um, as an assistant. And and then Ty just, you know, they just slid into our circle, which was, you know, just lovely that we all sort of became such close friends. And Ty had been running The Expanse as an online game for friends. And then, uh, he, you know, we were a big role-playing crowd. So he, you know, I was curious to play in it. Um, and so we, we played The Expanse. And then Daniel said to him, this would make a great book series. And boy, was he ever right. I mean, I, I adore the books. I think they're just fantastic. Yeah, I think it's quite striking that in your little community there, you have George R. R. Martin, who has the most popular fantasy show on TV, and, um, you know, Ty Frank and Daniel Abraham, who have, I don't know if it's the most popular science fiction show on TV, but it's certainly the best, in my opinion. And maybe Wild Cards will be the most popular superhero show on TV. I mean, it's quite a... a a powerhouse community well, quite there. Quite a batting average, isn't it? <laughs> yes. The, as George calls it, the New Mexico mafia, you know. <laughs> yeah. No, that's just really great. Okay. So, so tell us more about uh, the high ground. So you, um, uh, at the point where you decided you were going to go it alone, kind of what was the, um, what's, how about, how about the world? Tell a bit more about the world. So uh, why were you so uh, excited about the, the world that you, that you had dreamed up? Well, it started actually, I often get my ideas because I, I, I'm a very visual writer. I think I was born to be a screenwriter and maybe someday a director because I see everything in pictures. Um, and I had this sudden vision of this like nine foot tall alien ant-like creature with mandibles and claws and, you know, just hideous, terrifying creature. But it's cowering in absolute terror from a small human holding a machine gun. And I got to thinking about, you know, humanity and our, our tendency to be really, really mean, mean, mean monsters. You know, I mean, we're, we're kind of the biggest mother, you know, waters in the universe. And, um, and I thought, you know, if we do invent a faster than light speed drive and go out into the universe and meet other aliens, I am convinced that the first thing we will do is kick the holy crap out of them. Um, because we fear the other. Uh, we can't even manage to get along with each other if they seem, if, if, if a group or individual seem different than. So I wanted to explore that idea of a society, a highly stratified society, where the aliens have been conquered mercilessly by the humans. Um, so instead of us always fighting off the invading aliens, we are the invading aliens. And that was sort of where it came from. And I, you know, I was trained as a lawyer um, and I'm very interested in law, economics and governance and how politics works. So I wanted to create a society to explore those issues of, of otherness, of power structures um, and, you know, why a society would create. A, I wanted an aristocracy because they're just a lot of fun. And um, I figured that if you're trying to prove you're better than these, the five civilized alien races that you conquered, you would want to up your cred and say, you know, we are even more perfect than you are because we have an aristocracy. Um, and I do have my people all through the books talk about how what a ludicrous system of government it is. Uh, but it's the one they've got. And this aristocracy has developed from 
corporations that, that we know. So you talk about there's something called the Fortune 500, which is sort of the, the aristocratic yes. families. And then they're descended from like McDonald's and Nestle and things like that. <laughs> yes. George had so much fun. <laughs> Boho. He is the knight of the golden arches. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, he had a lot of fun creating Boho's uh, corporate you know, background. And yeah, I, I have Nokia, I mean, various, various FF, and they just, they don't call themselves, they just think of themselves as the FFH now, because it's 500 years. And some of that's sort of lost in, in the mist of time. Now, you said that you just wanted to write about aristocracy, because it's fun. But do you worry about corporations becoming a sort of new aristocracy or... Oh yeah, very much so. I mean, um, and and you know, this is not to say I'm I'm opposed to c capitalism. I'm not by any means, but I believe in well-regulated capitalism, and um, I could see when when companies become so big and so powerful uh, that they can actually you know influence the direction of countries and nations. Um, then I think you may have a problem, and and truly, money is the great leveler now. I mean. It, it's it's the thing that surpasses all boundaries, um, all borders, all nations is is how much money you've got, and it affects every aspect of life. I mean, what we've just seen with with Epstein is a classic case of that. Um, the man is a billionaire; he has connections, and so they skate. You know, they become beyond; they're untouchable on some levels, and and I think that's a real concern. Right. If people are listening to this in the future, we're talking about Jeffrey Epstein, who was uh, just charged you know, with uh, sex trafficking, basically, I think. And, you yeah. know, but had had um, evaded, you know, I mean, it was sort of known. This has been known for 10 years, I think, years or more. Or 10 or 15 years. Yeah, um, that, that this was going on. But but had been able to protect himself with, with his massive fortune and political connections and, and things like that. Um, so for sure. So um um, so, yeah, so in this future, the, the monarchies come back and um, gender roles have sort of regressed to a more traditional arrangement. So talk about that. Yeah, I, I looked at it um, and I did want to look at the issues because I really feel like women's rights are oddly tenuous. And certainly in this current era, as we've seen these assaults on, on women's autonomy and the right to control their own bodies, um, I think it would be very easy for us to lose that. And um, I mean, somebody, I, I wrote a story, a bit of a digression. I wrote a short story for a book series that George edited called Dangerous Women. And they asked me to write an essay about what made women dangerous. And the essay I wrote said it was the pill. Uh, the birth control pill made women dangerous because it meant we had control over our procreation. It meant we could pursue careers. We could have sex the way men have sex without quote unquote, consequences, and that that became quite frightening um, to some certain segment of the population. And so there are these assaults on it, um, because it goes past abortion. A lot of these places where they have these strict abortion rules are also gunning for birth control as well, because it, it sets gender roles much more in concrete. But when I looked at it, I thought, when you're going out into space, you're colonizing planets. If you happen to end up on a planet that isn't a Goldilocks planet, a sort of very Earth-like world where the it's harsh environment and you're 
the thing that becomes precious, a precious commodity is your ability to sustain the population. And so that over the, over the ensuing years, women fell back into a much more traditional role because they were protected. And the other factor is that the humans are one species versus my five, my five civilized alien races. And so there is this push to outbreed the aliens um, which you see now. I mean, you hear on the fringes of the right wing. Um, I hope I'm not being too political, but <laughs> sometimes no, no, you fine. have to. Um, on the fringes of the right wing, you hear an awful lot about how uh, there have to be more white babies. You know, we've got to have more white babies because, you know, we're going to be overrun. And I assume that that sort of feeling would, would continue when we had aliens. And so the idea that a woman's role is to marry, have children, run the home, et cetera, et cetera. Right. And the book doesn't go into this a lot, but there's the implication that Earth has been pretty ravaged by climate change. And so, um, you know, humans have to spread out to all these alien worlds. Yes. And uh, in, in, book, uh, in book four, which um, isn't out yet, <laughs> but has been done, um, there's a scene where my heroine Mercedes and her husband Boho Return to Earth, um, which is being run by a powerful family, as they're trying to recondition and bring the Earth back by um, by by trying to deal with the ravages of climate change. Right. I guess I'll just I'll, I only read the first book in the series, so anything I say is only uh, is yeah. Only no, no, I that. completely understand. But I want you to know, that, yes, I I do actually. You know, they they talk about the Earth because it's the home world, but um, it's a world that we you know messed up horribly and sort of had to move on. And they've actually, they've instituted, we we learn of, there are fines for on, only having one child or, or no children or something. Yes, yes, that um, it's, it's uh, you know, a little bit national socialism. It's the Nazis rewarding, rewarding good German families that had more babies or Aryan babies. And I just thought that makes perfect sense that you would punish people who, who don't have enough kids and don't, um, uh, or don't marry and, you know, make different choices. I mean, even, even gay men. And, and, and I also have a Catholic church that's a little different than our Catholic church because there's a certain order of nuns who bear children um, fathered by various priests. So, Right. Well, so tell us, I mean, yeah, so the Catholic church is a major factor in this world and um, sort of Spanish culture is very sort of prominent in the um, aristocracy. Um, so, so talk about that and talk about this, um, character you mentioned, Mercedes, who's one of the, one of your two main protagonists. Yes. Um, well, I was, I was interested in, in, um, you know, I, I come from New Mexico and I grew up in a minority majority state where I've always been the minority as an Anglo. Um, and I just, I just thought there was something interesting in exploring. Um, and I, I love the Hispanic culture. I mean, there's, there's, um, there's so much romance and passion and, and uh, to it that I, I just thought it would be fun to use that instead of a more English, you know, or British-based aristocracy. Um, and I wanted to have these two main characters. I knew I wanted to write a grand love story or a romance with a capital R um, and yet still explore societal issues. So I created um, Mercedes de Aranga, who is the... Um, the heir to the throne, and but shouldn't be because she's a girl. But her dad only had nine daughters, and uh, with 
five different wives. <laughs> he never did manage to get a boy. And rather than have the throne fall into the hands of his hated cousin, he um, he goes ahead and, and changes the law so his daughter can inherit. But in order to be the emperor or the empress of the Solar League, you have to be a military leader. So the book, the first book is about her realizing that she's going to have to go to the military academy and learn to be a soldier when she's 18 years old. Um, and being horrified at the prospect because she thought she would marry and do the things that a woman normally does in the Solar League. Um, but uh, her dad had other plans. So <laughs> it's her coming to to accept her role to and ultimately over the series of books embrace it and and then she meets Tracy, my other char- main character, my lowborn scum, as George calls him, uh, who is a scholarship student at the academy, and um, they fall in love. And then they they it takes a long time. <laughs> they they have a very fraught relationship over a number of decades. One of the other things I wanted to do, um, which is what George and I came up with when it was going to be a shared world, was that we would follow these characters from age eighteen into their fifties. So I've kept that because I think it's fascinating to watch people grow and change and develop. And so um, as the books progress, when I finish book five, which I'm writing right now, which is the final book, uh, both Mercedes and Tracy and Boho and everybody will be in their mid-50s. Well, yeah, I want to come back to that. But so before we get to that, so the um, yeah, in this first book, the characters are going to this military academy that's a, a space station in orbit around this planet called the High Grounds. And yeah, and, and like you said, Mercedes is part of the first group of female cadets um, that this previously all-male institution has ever had. So when you were kind of imagining that scenario, did you do research on like the integration at West Point or things like that? Or like what kind of – how did you sort of think through those dynamics? Yeah, I had I had read up on that. Um, I mean the difference is in our society, of course, we, we had legal challenges um, uh, that – helped open up these institutions. And here it was by fiat, by, you know, the rule of one man. Um, but I've, there's sort of a underplot that runs through all these books about what's really going on, that there's a secretive thing um, at work as to why the emperor only had nine daughters and no sons that uh, begins to become clearer as the books go on. But so it was a little bit different in that I, I could just, um, I, I could make it a little harder, I think, in some ways, although it's never been easy. And I made it less fraught in some ways for my my first class of women because they are somewhat untouchable. I mean, she is the emperor's daughter, so you're not going to have um, you're not going to have the kind of grotesque hazing that some of the first women at the military academies um, faced. Because you you know you can't you know if you do that you're you're likely to ruin your family, so I could tone it down a little bit from what uh, what was certainly tough for the first group of women cadets in our in military institutions. I mean, to what extent do you identify with Mercedes as a character? Because I mean, I heard you say, for example, that you were the only woman um, writing for Star Trek: The Next Generation when you were there, and I would imagine there have been experiences throughout your life where you were in overwhelmingly male environments or oh yes i was one of that first large class of women to graduate from law school 
And um, when I went to work at my lo- the law firm I worked at for a while, um, I was the first and only woman that my boss had ever hired. And I literally had a bunch of male lawyers from this big office building run downstairs and I heard them calling, we hear Charlie's hired himself a girl. Where's the girl? And they all came and looked at me in my office as if I were, you know, a creature in a zoo. It was very bizarre. So, yeah, I do identify with her a great deal because I've been in those situations. Um, and uh, I guess I'm second generation or whatever they call it, second wave feminism would be my era um, as we move through this. But, yeah, those were hard battles in the, in the early going. I was also I, I don't know a lot about this, but I, I, I believe that you your father was a businessman and that you were sort of the heir to the business or something. I was wondering if that made you identify with Mercedes in any way. Yes, yes, uh, very much. Um, my dad, uh, my dad was just fantastic. He was the center of my life. I loved him so much. And uh, he he gave me every opportunity um, to study opera in Europe, to ride horses, to, you know, he sat me down when I was 16 and said, we're opening a checking account and you have to manage it and, you know, on and on and on. And he had, at the time of his death, he was managing a small natural gas and oil company. And um, and now I actually manage the company. I took it over in 2002 and I've been running it ever since. So um, I have this sense of history with uh, with with being the heir apparent, if you will, or the heiress apparent <laughs> to hmm. to a business. Um, and I'm, you know, I'm really grateful for the opportunities he gave me. I mean, it is weird though, because at times my dad would slip and I had a half brother who was a great deal older than I was. And, uh, but dad would sometimes refer to, he would say my other son, John, (laughs) and then, you know, people like Senator Montoya, who was having lunch with us that day was laughing and saying, wait a minute, what's she, (laughs) you know, what your other son, John? Um, cause he really, he, put a lot of hopes and dreams on me. And, you know, I hope I lived up to them. I tried. Right. Because he took you to business meetings with him from a pretty young age, right? Yes. I traveled with him a great deal. Um, you know, I I was on airplanes from the time I was probably five years old. And a lot of my friends, my contemporaries didn't get to fly till they were grownups. And so it was a it was a different experience. Yeah. Do, are there, do you have any memories that stand out in your mind from going to a business meeting when you were I don't know, like a teenager or something. Um, <laughs> I I remember that you know sometimes these business meetings. I mean, these were hard charging, hard drinking gentlemen. Um, and my dad, he never let up. I mean, everybody else would be you know having their martinis and bourbon and just not really focusing. And my dad would be holding his glass and still talking business. He was, he was so focused, um, and so smart. And I just, I just remember sitting and watching that, um, watching that dynamic of how I was like, you know, no wonder you always control every situation, (laughs) dad, you know, because you, you, he had incredible charisma. He's not a big man. Uh, he was only about five foot six, but he had, he had tremendous charisma and just control and probably one of the smartest people I've ever known. Wow. Yeah. Okay. So then this other character you mentioned, Tracy. Uh, Tracy is short for Thracius, which sounds yes. Roman to me. Is there a story yes. behind that name? Um, partly because <laughs> Walter John Williams, another one of our writing friends from the New Mexico Mafia, 
uh, had been a game master for us, and he was running a Roman Republic campaign for 10 years that Daniel and George and myself and several other people played in for years. And we all fell in love with, with Imperial, well, not Imperial, but Ro the Republic, Roman Republic era. And um, so one of my editors kept saying, but Tracy is a girl's name. And I said, no, it actually isn't. It's, it's gender neutral. It can be used. But I realized I needed to give him his formal name and Tracy is the nickname. And I thought, well, I'll just, I'll make it Roman <laughs> in the sort of honor of, of that fun time we all had playing the Roman game. And, and I sort of, and then the random uh, was a little bit of a, a hat tip to, um, to our dear friend, Roger Zelazny. Um, I was playing a little bit with, with some of his, his naming techniques. So, so that's where Thracius Random Bell Manor comes from. <laughs> Right, yeah. Roger Zelazny is actually my favorite author. Um, for people who don't know, Ransom is one of the the nine princes of, in Amber uh, in the Amber yeah. series. I actually want to come back to Roger Zelazny um, if we have time. But so, um, but yes, I mean, it's interesting that you say you know you have, as we mentioned, the Spanish influences and the Roman influences because this um this future society it's this real melange of different cultural and historical influences. Mm -hmm. I mean, could you say what? What are the different? Yeah, I mean, I thought part of it was that, um, I mean, human society, humans, we create stories and myth. I mean, um, and so this is a society that actually is is very much myth based. It it has taken pieces of anything that will help it support its sense of of entitlement and power, um, and has created a myth that really doesn't make any sense on a lot of levels. Uh, because it is this this melange of whatever we think will work. Because I wanted to look at that fact that we we tell stories, and uh, I mean that's one of the reasons I know another digression here. One of the reasons I really enjoyed the Last Jedi, although I know a lot of people hated it because I thought it was all about deconstructing myth, and um, I think that's really interesting and fun. And I created a society where myth and stories are controlling it for the most part. Yeah, I love The Last Jedi, just uh, parenthetically there. But oh, I'm, <laughs> I mean, um, cause I think for exactly that you can people, if they're curious, they can go and listen to our review of it. But I, I think for exactly the same reason you're saying, the sort of subversive, surprising plotting of it. Um, but so, I mean, I'm, I'm not as probably familiar with some of the historical, um, you know, references that you're drawing on. But it, it sort of seemed to me kind of, it reminds me of Jane Austen a little bit. It reminds me of sort of the um, the British Navy a little bit. Um, <laughs> oh yes, <laughs> I um, I grew up reading Horatio Hornblower because they were my father's favorite books. Um, I then went on to um, read. Uh, oh my God, Master and Commander. Why am I blanking on the author's Patrick name? Patrick O'Brien. Patrick O'Brien. Um, Walter John Williams ran a a British Age of Sail game for us for decades and quizzed me when we went to Britain <laughs> one time about which what kind of ship is that? Is that a sloop or is that a frigate? Um, we really get into these games. So I love all that. Um, I really enjoy Jane Austen and Georgette Hare. And in fact, I was a, a part of the Regency dance group um, that goes that turns up at World Cons. Um, and uh, when we don't have enough girls, I dance as a British naval officer. And then when we have enough, or when we don't have enough boys, I dance as a British naval officer. And then I put on my Empire dress and get to be a girl when we have enough guys. So um, I, I just find that whole period. And I think uh, 
I think you learn a lot about society in terms of its its entertainments and its manners and how it behaves. So I like to I like to play with that. So the the cards where you write down who you're going to dance with next, that's a Regency thing? That's a Regency. Oh, very much so. Yeah. You would have a little card tied with a ribbon on your wrist and then gentlemen would come over and and put their name down for the gavotte or the waltz or, you know, whatever it was you were. And and trying to dodge the guy you didn't want to waltz (laughs) with was always great fun, you know. Well, so how about some of the more science fictional elements of the story? Like, it, like I said, it takes place on a space station, and you know they have these sort of fighter um, spacecraft that they pilot. How much, um, you know, how much thought did you put into those, and did you sort of consult with anyone else? Uh, um, I, not really. I took a leaf from Ty and Daniel. I mean, one of the things because the kids are young and they are not on the second book picks up when they graduated and they're on their first missions. Um, uh, you know, I've always felt like explaining technology that doesn't exist is really boring. And, um, you know, I, I, Ty and Daniel never explain the Epstein drive in the expanse. It just works, you know. Um, and one other friend of ours used to say, somebody says, how does this work? And the response was, it runs on plot. <laughs> um, so I tend to do that myself. Um, uh, for a TV pilot I wrote, I had come up with an idea that the way we did faster than light speed was we folded space and we went through dimensions and cut through them and blah, blah, blah. So my faster than light speed is called fold. It's the fold technology, F-O-L-D. And so you translate in and out of fold. um, And then it still takes some time to get from an outer system, outer solar system to a planet. Um, you know, I tried to at least make it consistent within my made up rules, but I didn't spend a lot of time explaining it because, you know, it's all hand waving. I mean, ultimately, we're writing fantasy the minute you have faster than light speed drive. Mm-hmm. How about the space station? It sort of has a ring around it that's connected by cables to some sort of central structure. Was there any, do you have a, I don't know, did you draw oh, a map a, of that? Or that I did a huge amount of research on, uh, partly because I was asked to pr- develop a TV series set on a space station. Um, and so I had all of these books about um, Taurus designs and, you know, how you would how you would actually control and what the spin would have to be. And, you know, all of these issues. Um, I, I think I have about six or seven books on that in my library. So that that's one place where I did put in a lot of effort to try to uh, to research how space station technology actually works. And part of it is there's a hyperloop. Is that like a Elon Musk kind of hyperloop? Or? Yeah, um, maybe not quite as fast as Elon's, but <laughs> uh, yeah, they have this sort of little train and, and that this is a place where the big ships, the big star cruisers come in to mostly carrying tourists, come into dock and freighters carrying goods. I mean, you know, you're not going to move wood and steel, you know, from other planets because that's stupid, um, unless it's like a very precious commodity, a special kind of wood that only grows in one place or something that's, you know, a luxury item. But they would still carry luxury items. And um, so everything docks there and then is ferried down to the planet, you know, by shuttles, um, including people, because, you know, there's a lot of travel between the, the League worlds. Um, I got to tell you, coming up with names for all those League hmm. planets, that was a pain in the ass all through this thing. It's like, okay, what am I going to call this planet? What's it like? And, you know... Um, so trying to create all these different worlds and especially for the aliens, what their worlds are like. Well, yeah. So I guess let's talk about the aliens. So I think you mentioned there are five 
No. Five civilized races, yes. Yeah. Um, I think uh, the Asanjo, Hajin, Tiponi, Sidon, and Karaat. Yes. Um, so what was the, just what was the process like of why did you just why did you want five and how much? Well, partly uh, it was a callback to the thing that the hideous thing that we did um, when America was first settled, where we referred to the the five in the five Indian nations as the five civilized nations. So I was doing a little bit of callback to that racism that's in our history regarding the Cherokee, the Iroquois, you know, so forth and so on. And I just had them, us carry that same, you know, human racism and apply it to these aliens. Um, the Hajin um, are somewhat, you know, they're herbivores, sort of horse-like. And as people may know who know me, I'm <laughs> horse crazy. I own two, two Lusitanos and I ride all the time. So it was fun researching how um, a herbivore would develop. Like, you know, the, the females have heat cycles, unlike humans who we don't have a heat cycle. We're sort of always able to, to become pregnant as opposed to other creatures. Um, the Taponi flutes, that was just me having some fun with what if a plant became sentient? <laughs> you know, what if a, a plant-based creature um, and that they're a little bit elusive and hard to understand. And the Sidoni are big spiders, um, so they don't get a lot of um, terrorists, to put it mildly. Um, and the Asanjo are sort of my, uh, you know, they're out there in the world being a lot, and they're servants. Mostly the Hajin and the Asanjo are servants. And then the Karaot are my, the race that the humans most fear, that they had the hardest time conquering and they are master traders, but and while they trade in luxury goods, they mostly trade in DNA um, from various worlds and creatures. And they are chameleons. They change themselves constantly, their genders, um, how many arms and legs they have. Uh, they can completely re rework a physical body. And so the humans fear and fear them a great deal. And so I guess most authors have their cat aliens and you have your horse aliens. <laughs> yeah. And I guess my Asanjo are sort of like lemurs. That's like big lemurs. That's how I picture my Asanjo. Uh -huh. um, so, yeah. So, but, so you mentioned, yeah, there's, I think you called it the New Mexico mafia. There's all these science fiction authors there. And you say in the um, acknowledgments that there are a bunch of authors, you mentioned Ty and Daniel, and then also, um, Eric Kelly and Sage Walker and Matt Wrighton all sort of helped you out. Could you talk about sort of to what extent this book was collaborative uh, with people that you know? It was collaborative in the sense that um, we were all in a writer's group together. And so I would bring in two or three chapters each month for people to read and critique and give me feedback. And Sage is a retired physician. So she was very helpful to me on some of the the issues of alien physiology and, and how the Karaot would do their thing. Um, and Eric was one of my beta readers. He read the book when it was done um, and gave me some feedback. So in that sense, it was collaborative in that it was a great writers group and I was getting the benefit of all of their insights. You say that um, Ty and Daniel helped you plot out the arc, created the arc of Imperials. Yes. Um, when I first came to Hollywood and got my job on Star Trek, I was, I'd always been an outliner. I mean, I, I think as part of being a lawyer, I always outlined my books. 
But it wasn't until I came to Hollywood and discovered the art of breaking a story in this very detailed way that we do it in a writer's room. And I was like, oh, be still my heart. Where has this been all my life? And when I left Hollywood and went back home for a while, I brought the concept back to the writer's group. And I said, you know, I think this would work for novels, too. And obviously, we don't do it in as detailed a form as we would do in a writer's room for a, for a you know, 50-minute script. But we began to break each other's stories. And so the rule was, hey, I've got this idea for a new book or a new book series. I'd like to pull the troops together to have a plot break. And you have to buy the group either lunch or dinner. <laughs> they come and help you. And then you spend all day with a whiteboard or a cork board and three by five cards. And you lay out, you lay out the arc of the story. Um, we, we did that with Daniel's Dagger in the Coin series. Um, we did it with some of Walter John's books. And when it came time for me to plot all five books of the Imperial Saga, I called in Walter and Ty and Daniel and uh, and we got together and I brought the whiteboard and and we started to work on it. And there are changes. I mean, initially we had six books. And then as I got into really, really getting detailed on the outlines, I realized that five books would enable me to tell the story adequately. I didn't need the extra book. I mean, I've only ever written short stories. So just the idea of plotting out five books, just that's I'm very impressed that you're able to do that. Well, I knew how it ended. Um, I won't start something if I don't know how it ends. I have to I have to see that ending. It has to be absolutely solid for me. If it's not there, I don't start it because I know it will be a mess. And the key to how we do it and how we do it uh, in a writer's room in Hollywood, too, is you plot backwards. Um, you put down the end of the thing. I break my books into a teaser and four acts or three acts, depending on the length. And then I put down the final big climactic thing at the end of act four three, say, and then I fill in the end of act two and the end of act one, and um, I'll have the teaser. If I can get the teaser and the conclusion, the climax and the teaser, the rest of it becomes easy. And once I know where I have to go, then I know the scenes I need to get me there. Um, and with the books, I knew how it ended. I knew where it ended for all the characters. Then it was just a matter of figuring out, you know, what what is the climax of each of these books? And then and, and to be honest, I mean, my, my proposal to my agent took out, book one was very detailed, book two a little less so, and then it became less <laughs> detailed as we got to book five, because, you know, there are going to be some adjustments and changes as you go. But it sounds like the publisher bought all five books, right? So they must have been pretty confident that you were going to deliver, right? Yes, yes. Um, I, I have a track record. So they were they were they were good with that. Um, although, you know, traditional publishing is having its issues. And so um, my agent and I are exploring some other options that I can't really go into right now. But uh, I'll keep you posted when I can talk about it. Okay, because yeah, because I think three of the books are out right now, and two are still to be published. Or yeah, I book four is completed. And I'm working on book five, but uh, we're looking at uh, we're looking at maybe taking some. I mean, the the landscape for fiction is definitely um, evolving, shall we say? So what do you? I mean, what do you mean by that? That the, well, the landscape that, is evolving. I mean, well, brick and mortar bookstores are becoming you know, very problematic. Um, we lost borders, you know, all these others have gone. Uh, Barnes and Noble is none too solid financially or stable financially. Um, 
And I think that writers that there are more and more people are reading electronically. I know I do. Um, rather than carry a big bag of books on the airplane, I now have everything on an iPad. Um, and so I think you just have to, uh, I just think the paradigm of how publishing has worked is, is being redefined and, um, you have to move with the times. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I, I guess you probably can't talk about it, but, but you, you see sort of self-publishing or sort of e-publishing in or the future? A form, yeah, a form of self-publishing. I mean, what Amazon is doing, for example, with Amazon Publishing, which you still have to have an agent and they, they act like a real, like a big publisher, but it's print on demand. So you're not, you're not up against the fact that the publishers printed 6,000 copies and, oh my God, you didn't sell them and now they're going to strip them and send them back. I mean, all of that kind of nonsense that came out of magazine sales in the 1930s um, that was just crazy for books. All of that is sort of changing. I mean, you know, you can call Amazon Publishing, you can download the book electronically, you can also call up and say, hey, I need 30 copies of the book. And they'll print them with the cover and data and ship them you know, to wherever it is you need them. So I just think that the marketplace as we know it is certainly in, in flux and in transition. Um, and you just have to figure out, you know, what's the best place for you as an author to work within that. But I, I really can't say too much more. Yeah, yeah. Well, so speaking of sort of financial difficulties and things, you say that um, my patient stockbroker, Brian Bauer, spent a long time talking with me about how to ruin a person's finances or a planet's economy. <laughs> yes, yes. He was one of my advisors on this. Um when when I have uh, when I have the emperor showing Mercedes how to bring down a rival by uh, by price fixing and manipulating the market, I, I went to Brian and uh, and he uh, he walked me through some of that. I mean, some of that I know because I'm a businesswoman and I have investments, but it was really helpful to have an expert because he's not only a stockbroker, he was a banker, um, too. So I had his expertise. I, I think that's one of the things a lot of science fiction writers overlook is economics and fantasy writers too, for that matter. I mean, it's like, you know, how are you going to pay for that? And, <laughs> you know, what is the money and, and what is the currency and what about inflation? And, you know, all of these questions that, you know, are there monetary manipulations? Do there, is there a fed, you know, that's deciding where interest rates are? And, um, and I find that stuff really interesting. It's just making it interesting for a reader. Um, I, I'm going to call out Daniel Abraham. I think he did a great job in his series, The Dagger and the Coin, where one of his main characters is a banker. Well, yeah, and I, interf you know, I interviewed Walter John Williams as well. And in his, in his the, I think it was the fourth book in the Praxis series. There's a pretty long, detailed section about how to, you know, about financial <laughs> yeah. shenanigans and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, and what fun was that? I loved that section. You know, that was great. Absolutely. Is there anything that, that Brian Bauer said to you that you remember like, oh, that's a specific thing that I don't, I wouldn't have thought of on my own. Uh, God, let me try to think back. That was uh, quite a while ago. Um, I think the idea of um, buying up a supply of a particular thing, whether it's um, uh, lithium or, you know, whatever it is, you buy it, hoard it, make it scarce and then flood the market. Um, you know, I don't think I would have, maybe come to that on my own as, as quickly. Um, I might've gone to um, much more playing games with interest rates or, you know, making money costs more. And he was saying you can entice somebody to, 
to invest heavily in a particular item and then gut the market and ruin them because they're they can't sell it. They're selling it below cost. Um, and so that was the that was the game I played in the book. Right. I thought it was sort of diabolical, too, that I don't think would have occurred to me that, you know, so, so this the emperor is going to sell tons and tons of lithium or whatever it is in order to drive the price down. But then it's also pointed out that if you're the first person who starts selling it, the price is, is dropping incrementally. So you're actually getting a pretty good deal. Yeah, you're getting a great at the beginning. On money. Yeah. yeah. And then the, the then the other people are, are getting screwed, which is why insider trading is so pernicious. You know, why we why we make it illegal. Yeah. Yeah. So I thought that was really cool. Um, one thing I noticed is that, uh, you know, as I said, the, the title of the first book is The High Ground. And The High Ground is also the title of one of the episodes of Star Trek The Next Generation that she wrote. I was just curious if there's any uh, connection there or do you just yeah, really I just love like that the title? title or... I just like that title and it kind of work, fits in so many places. Um, and, and it was my title before because that was what I had called. I had always called my military and I had written the first version of this book, um, you know, back the, the trunk version of this book that had different characters and, you know, different thing going on. Um I had called this the the academy the high ground. That was before I ever went to Star Trek. So it's just sort of it's been a title that I've used a lot. Oh wow! So so what year did you start the oh, earliest God. version of this? the the trunk novel version of this was probably probably in the early eighties, maybe um, eighty four. You know, before I before I went off to Trek, I had written a ton of pages on it and it just didn't work. You know, it just, I knew the universe was cool, but I had the wrong characters and I had the wrong, I mean, actually in that version of the book, the character is the chancellor of the exchequer, an older man in his fifties instead of these two kids. And then I realized that was the wrong approach. What I really needed to do was go with a younger generation and follow them. And so did you do, did did you not touch it really at all for like 20 years or were you, Oh, it's done. Revisiting. I, mean, you know, I, I, I revisit it in the sense that there are pieces of it that I could cannibalize um, to bring into the Imperials books. But, you know, every writer has trunk books. And sometimes you just have to say that didn't work. You know, it's not wasted effort. You always you, you become a better writer by doing it. And there may be some kernel of it that you can that you can mine and use that's going to be helpful later. But no, I generally um, I if a if a book doesn't work, it move on. You know, I, I've seen too many writers get hung up and spend 10 or 12 years writing and fussing with a book that isn't working. Um, and if it's, you know, it's, at some point you have to say, OK, I got to move on or I've got to completely rethink this thing. Um, and I think Hollywood's been very helpful for that. I mean, sometimes your studio or your network comes back and says, we hate this, replot it. And then, you know, you've got to replot something really fast and on the fly and then rewrite it. Um, and and that's actually a good skill to have. I was looking at the Wikipedia article for the Star Trek episode, The High Ground, and there's kind of this interesting note where it says that in that episode, data notes in passing that Ireland was unified in 2024. And as a result of that, uh, the BBC wouldn't show the episode for a long time. I don't know if you know anything about that. I don't know anything about that. <laughs> this, is, actually, this, is, this is total yeah. news to you? And I, I'd heard rumors about it. Um, I just, you know, part of it is that that was such a long time ago. I have a really hard time remembering some of what went on. <laughs> um, 
And uh, I, I make it a policy. I never read reviews. And um, I never I never read anything about myself. <laughs> I hope there isn't stuff that's out there that's horrible because I would not know. <laughs> um, I just I, I think that's death for a writer. Um, if you see a bad review, it crushes you and it obsess you obsess on it. And if you get a good review, you know all it does is feed your ego. So um, I just keep my head down and do the work. You know I think that's a for me it's a better way to operate. So did you put this thing in about Ireland being unified or was that something else I in the writer's room? Yeah. yeah, I put it in. You know, I want, you know, you need to, what does happen? I mean, there should be some change in, in how things, you know, um, in how the world develops. Uh, you can't just assume everything's going to stay, stay the same over several hundred years, you know. Yeah. Would it ever have occurred to you that someone would take exception to that? Or you're just like, oh, it's no, a science fiction it, show. It's, you know, it's I, I was like, it's a science fiction show. Here's something that could be science fiction-y. You know, it never occurred to me that it would be so fraught, um, which was a good, a good lesson, you know, to at least think about it. I mean, the question is, how safe do you play it? And, and when do you push and challenge? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I mentioned, you know, I said I, that Roger Zelazny is my favorite author. And so I've always wanted to uh, go to Santa Fe because, you know, I know he, he lived there for many years. I was just curious uh, if you could say a bit more about what your uh, experience with him was like. And I don't know, is there anything in Santa Fe that I should check out if I if I ever go there? Well, um, his house, unfortunately, has been sold several times. His wonderful, wonderful home up on Stagecoach Road. Um, I just I remember, I mean. Roger and I became very close in the final two years of his life. He joined our gaming group. Um, he would come and have dinner at our house many, many evenings. Um, uh, he's He was truly just the most charming, kind person I've ever known. I, I grieve to this day that we lost him so young. I mean, all those books that I didn't get to read. Um, and... And, and, you know, his just his wit and charm. And he was playing an outer space game that my, my, hus my ex-husband was running. And he was playing the chaplain on the ship. And we were going into battle. And he offered a prayer. And it was, um, is it Creatures of Light and Darkness? I can't remember where he has the big prayer. But he took that prayer and he just sort of changed it on the fly. And he delivered this long, <laughs> this long, beautiful prayer, you know, to whichever gods might be listening. And please don't be offended. And, you know, if you if you're so inclined, look upon <laughs> us with victory. And and I had I mean, that room was filled with Walter John Williams, Roger Zelazny, George Martin. I mean, I had to pinch myself a few times as we were playing that game. Um, and Roger was so cute. I mean, they would come to dinner and my horses used to be on our property. Um, and for those of you horse people, we put fly masks on them in the summertime so the flies don't irritate their ears and eyes. And so there are these masks on their faces and Roger had never seen anything like that. And he came into the house and he said, are your horses going incognito to a mask ball? <laughs> you know, and I was like, I love you. You know, you're the greatest man in the world. Um, now he was, he was wonderful. And I just, um, I remember the very first time I met him was at a barbecue at George's house. And I literally was struck dumb. I could not speak because this was Roger Zelazny and he had written Lord of Light and called me Conrad. And I was just, I, I, I looked, I, I'm sure I sounded like an idiot to him. So I'm really glad we got an opportunity to actually get to know each other. And, um, 
and me get past being tongue tied with with awe. Um, <laughs> I saw somewhere you said that uh, he encouraged you not to to, to publish under Snodgrass and not take some That's other name. That's right. Yeah, thank you for reminding me of that. Um, I had just started writing, and this literary agent that I had, that was also Victor Milan's and Bob Vardaman's agent, and was at this dinner we were all at at a at the local science fiction convention. And she said, you have to change your name. And Roger immediately said, no, no, she doesn't. He said, he said, look at my name. Nobody, <laughs> even though I'm on the bottom shelf in every bookstore, he said, nobody forgets my name. And he said, he turned to me and he said, don't you change your name because nobody will ever forget that name. And I, I kept it. <laughs> also, it would have broken my father's heart if I'd changed my name and written under a pseudonym. Yeah. Well, it's funny because, you know, I said he was my favorite author for my whole life since I was, uh, you know, 14 or something. And, uh, and and everyone always had a hard time pronouncing the name. And I'd always say, no, it's, it's Zelazny. It's so simple. Um, but then I just found out like a year ago, it's actually Zelazny. Uh, and so now I, I have to sort of mentally, uh, <laughs> you know, concentrate to say it right every time now. Yeah, the Zelazny versus Zelazny. You were giving it a very elegant twist. <laughs> Um, but so he has a he has a house up on a hill. I mean, obviously, you know, he had a house. I, I won't go inside of it. Yeah. But uh, he had a beautiful, beautiful home um, up in the at the foot of the Sangre de Cristo Mountains in Santa Fe. And his writing office was this huge space with this gigantic um, window, uh, sort of, uh, you know, just that that looked out on the mountains. Um, and I, I swear, in some ways, I was like, how can you possibly concentrate to write when you're looking out <laughs> at this kind of beauty? Um, but no, he had this, he had this space that was his and, um, this huge picture window with the mountains just framed by it and a uh, beautiful space to work in. Uh, but like I said, after Roger's death, um, his wife, you know, sold the house and downsized. It was a big house. <laughs> it was a big place. Mm-hmm. So, but, uh, if you go to the John Cocteau theater, George has all of our various books there. And I know there are some of Roger's books there too. I don't know if any of them are signed, if he has any signed copies left. But uh, Oh, yeah, no, I definitely want to go to the, the Jean Cocteau. Do you want to just explain for listeners what that is? Uh, yeah, the Jean Cocteau is a very small movie theater that George bought in this sort of historic building that was built in 1902. Um, it's George's train set. You know, He gets to have so <laughs> much fun. And it has um, he's turned it into probably the best science fiction independent bookstore in, in the Southwest. Uh, because in addition to the little movie theater, there's a sort of bar, there's a they have a liquor license, so there's a bar, and then there's concessions. And then he has art, artists come in and hang their art for a few weeks, so you get to see various artists, Santa Fe artists. And he has all of our books, and he does events where it's – some when they're not doing movies, he'll have an event where – Connie Willis will come down and I'll interview her and then she'll do a signing afterwards when she has a new book out and, uh, um, you know, various, and he's had so many great writers and not always just science fiction writers. I mean, sometimes it's, it's, it's been, you know, literary novelists as well. And you can find anybody who's been a guest at the Jean Cocteau, they keep their books and have them on hand. So you can go in and buy some books and have a White Walker cocktail while you're there. <laughs> um, you know, watch a small independent movie. And and when George is in town, you'll often find him there in his ensconced in his armchair by the fireplace. So um, in the evenings to visit with people. Oh, so wow. it's great fun. Yeah. Oh, that sounds great. And there's the Meow Wolf thing there too, oh, yeah. right? 
Oh, Meow Wolf is fabulous. Meow Wolf is an art installation um, that George owns the building that the installation is in. Um, and can, he went in to work with this this genius. I can't remember Vince's last name, but he invited a number of artists. They had a sort of overarching story, and then they designed rooms in this mysterious mansion that there's a great mystery associated with what happened to the people who owned the house. And when you go into Meow Wolf, you're transported into different worlds, and it's so worth doing. But um, at peak tourist time, I highly recommend people go online and book the time of their entrance because uh, entry because otherwise you'll stand in line for an hour, an hour and a half. So, but Meow Wolf is fantastic. So, and they are branching out. There's going to be one in Denver. Um, they're working in La- Las Vegas, and I think they're working on Austin and Los Angeles. But I, I won't swear to that. Yeah, I, th- I think that's right. I mean, you know, there's a, a documentary that just came out called Meow Wolf Origin Story. And mm. um, my girlfriend and I just watched it. And it's 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 pretty amazing. Uh, and George is kind of a, a character in it. So uh, mm-hmm. people should definitely check that out. Yeah, when Vince came to him and said, there's this old abandoned um, uh, bowling alley, and I think you should buy it and let us put an art installation in it. And George went, okay. <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> have you seen have you seen the documentary? I have not. I, I didn't even know there was a documentary, but that's deeply cool. Yeah, no, it, there's, there's a really funny shot in it where, um, you know, George has agreed to invest, I think, something like $800,000 to buy this bowling alley and refurbish it and turn it into this art space. And then uh, uh, it, it turns out that it's going to cost $1.8 or something. And that they just have a shot of George just looking sort of uh, <laughs> put out or something. <laughs> it's really funny. Yes. <laughs> It was a lot of work to bring that to gut that building and then bring it up to, to up to some sign of code. You know, it was something. But it, it's if you're ever in Santa Fe, it is a must. Go, definitely go see Meow Wolf. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. All right, so there's a, a, just a couple other things I wanted to mention. So uh, in an interview I watched with you, you said that um, Empire Strikes Back changed your life. Could you talk about that? <laughs> yeah, people laugh at me. I, I'm going to tell the story anyway. I don't care if it humiliates myself. Um, I was a deeply unhappy lawyer. Um, I was in this law office. I hated it. Um, I would get into work in the morning, close my door, cry for about 15 minutes, <laughs> then get control of myself and get on with work. And uh, my best friend at the time, this was before George had moved down to New Mexico, was Victor Milan. And he was saying, I bet you could write if you tried because you, you, you're a singer, you know, you studied opera in Europe, you do ballet, you do all this other stuff. You're very artistic. And I was scared because it was a big change because, you know, you finish law school, you pass the bar, you feel like you should do this. And uh, Vic and I had seen Star Wars together on opening night, and we made it a tradition that we always went to see the new Star Wars movie the moment it opened. I'm giving away how old I am. (laughs) Um, And we went to see Empire, and we got to the scene with Yoda and Luke, and and Luke says, you know, I'll try. And Yoda says, do or do not. There is no try. And for some reason, it was like a thunderbolt for me. And I was like, I can spend the rest of my life in this law firm. And in a few years, maybe I'll have the big office and I'll be terrorizing some young associate the way I'm being terrorized. Or I can try to have my own life, chart my own life. And 
do or do not. There is no try. <laughs> so I walked into the office the next morning. I typed up a letter of resignation. I packed up my plants and my diplomas, and I laid it on my boss's desk, and I walked out. Um, and that was it. <laughs> I quit on the spot and started to write. Vic uh, was my mentor. I started writing books and uh, turned out to be a good choice. Well, right. And you say that people laugh at you, but I mean, I, I really, one of my things that I go on about a lot is that, you know, I'm not religious at all, but I feel like fantasy and science fiction functions like a religion in my life. You know, that it, it's sort mm -hmm. of, you know, these, these sort of mythical stories that examine ethical issues and, and give you a sense of purpose and all this kind of stuff. And so I think it's, it's cool and makes total sense to me that Empire Strikes Back would have that kind of profound impact. Well, on I, I love Star Wars. I adore Star Wars. And, you know, it, it literally changed my life. And it's just that I remember I mentioned this once to somebody who looked at me and said, you took advice from a green puppet. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, I guess I did. <laughs> but it worked out. He's a very, very wise green puppet. Yeah. Who has odd syntax, but other than that. <laughs> and then just another interesting thing I came across is that you said that you've played Dragon Age Origins all the way through four or five times. Yes, I love that game. I love that game. Um, which is weird because I'm much more of a science fiction nerd than a fantasy nerd. Um, but... Uh, if Mass Effect hadn't screwed up the end of Game 3, I would have given it the prize for being the best video game I've ever played, but it loses out to Dragon Age Origins as a result. I mean, I that game is brilliant. It is so complex. It has a fascinating villain who is not really a villain. He's he's a tragic figure who's fighting the last war and doesn't realize the game has, you know, the, the rules have changed. Um there are these subplots and the choices you make in Dragon Age. You you have to make just gut-wrenching choices. And if you play as a real jerk through the game, you'll end up in the final battle with no companions. Your companions will leave you. They'll go, nope, <laughs> not having anything more to do with you. You're, you're terrible. And they'll abandon you. Um, I just, I think it's a stunning game. And yeah, the gameplay is antiquated and it's not as clean and, you know, you're, the character you play doesn't speak in this particular game, but oh my god, it's a great game. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't played it, but so is it? Is it not like watching a movie five times, where because you make choices, it's sort of a different experience every time you play? Or yeah, and I just um, I sometimes make different choices. I tend to play paladins um, a lot, which is why it's kind of fun with my new character in Wild Cards, who's such a a bastard <laughs> that he's kind of fun to write. Um, but I, I think it's also that I've, every time I play that game, I find some new little tiny Easter egg I missed. It's amazing. There are all these little hidden things, you know, places I didn't explore. And I'm a completist. I have to do every single <laughs> stupid mission. Um, but, um, it, it's, I, I guess because I invest so much of myself into the characters, I, it feels, it always feels fresh to me. Um, and I really enjoy it. I'm trying to learn Witcher 3, but my God, the combat system is so fiddly, and I I keep not having enough time to focus on it to really <laughs> get it down. So, Well, yeah, I mean, it sounds like you're really, really busy right now. Yeah, I have been. I mean, we're on a, a hiatus now. We're, we're pretty much done with all of our work, and now it's uh, on the knees of the gods and the Hulu people to see, you know, what happens next, so... I mean, is, this is this is for the wild cards. TV the wild show. cards TV shows, yes. So, so you've 
I don't know if you can say, but you, you finished what have we you? We finished the work that we we set when the writers' room. It was a twenty-eight week writers' room for for some of us, and uh, the twenty-eight weeks was up on July fifth, and uh, we've done the, the the we have delivered. We were delivering the process of delivering what we promised we would deliver, so that they could make a decision based on the material. So that's about all I can say at the moment. So the scripts. I don't know if, if you can some say, scripts, some yeah. scripts and some outlines. And, um, you know, now we'll see. But what a, I had a wonderful, it was a wonderful writing staff. And uh, I can't say enough good about all of them. And uh, our showrunner, Andrew Miller, is fantastic. And um, it's been, it's just, it's been a glorious experience. It was so wonderful to get back in a writer's room. I really had missed it. It's intense, but it was fantastic. Yeah, well, I certainly hope that that happens because if people don't know, you know, Wild Cards, it's the superhero world and it's very gritty and and deals, you know, is a lot more realistic and, and less cartoonish than sort of typical superhero stuff. Yes, very much. And there's no spandex. We have a no spandex <laughs> rule. And if you die in Wild Cards, you're dead. There, there is no coming back. Um, death should have consequences in 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 fiction. Yeah. Well. I, yeah. I certainly. I'm really looking forward to to, to seeing that if uh, you know if, if everything works out. Yes. Well, fortunately, this is a brand new like with publishing this brand new paradigm. We have there are so many many ways in which you can uh, consume media now. So. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, all right. So we're pretty much out of time. So do you have? Is there any other any final thoughts you have, or any other projects that you want to let people know about? No, I don't think so. Um, I, I, you know, right now I'm still buried in finishing off Imperials and bringing Mercedes and Tracy to a safe harbor. And, uh, um, and then I'll think about my next thing then, you know, I'm sort of, I'm in waiting mode and, and putting my focus on the books right now. But thank you very much for the opportunity to visit. Oh, yeah, yeah. Thank you so much for appearing on the show. And so we've been speaking with Melinda Snodgrass about her novel, The High Ground. So Melinda, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. And that was our interview. So big thanks again to Melinda Snodgrass for joining us on the show. Big thanks as well to John Torvaldson, who just signed up this week to support us on Patreon. Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at patreon.com geeks. And if you'd rather make a one-time contribution, you can do that via check or PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com crowdfunding. So big thanks again to everyone who's contributed. We really appreciate it. All right, so that was our show. So thanks, everyone, for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarkirtley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.